Revelation chapter four. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne was 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and revelings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives, on, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. If you were here last week, you uh, may remember that Jesus set an open door before the church in Philadelphia. Remember that? Uh, that, that they might look through this door spiritually into hell, heaven's realm and, and be refreshed and commune with God in some sense. Well, I'm so happy that we get to actually look at Revelation 4 this morning because it is the open door. Uh, it is uh, how we, we gaze into the heavenly throne room and, and see what John saw, or at least how he could describe it using as much human language as possible. Um, and I really, I was thinking about this week, I think the best way to describe what John sees in heaven through this door is worship. Heaven is full of worship. So we're going to go through these verses and, and pick them apart. There's so much imagery there. We could spend all day like describing each eyeball on each wing. But, but we're, gonna, we're just going to look at the, the big sections and see what's going on in this worship ceremony. We're going to look at the throne. We're going to look at the four living creatures. And we're going to look at the 24 elders. And look... If you're not like a super worshipful person, if maybe you're even just sort of trying out the Christianity thing and, or, or you're, you're a Christian but it seems like your heart just lately hasn't been in it, or it seems like every, uh, every bit of like the divine experience seems to slip through your fingers, if any of this describes you, let me just invite you to sit back and observe the worship going on in heaven. Just sit back and, and see what's happening there because God is currently being worshipped. 
He's got his worship. It is happening. And as we recenter ourselves around him and see what's going on too, uh, we, we will also start to, to worship. So let's look at the throne. Let's look at the four living creatures and let's look at the 24 elders. And, and heads up, uh, just so you're not looking at your watch as we go through this, I'm going to spend about half the time looking at the throne and then we'll, we'll split the other half between the, the living creatures and the elders. So the throne. The throne is heavenly. Look at verse 1. A voice calls to John and tells him to come up through the open door. It's not a literal door, it's like a spiritual door. And John is told that he will see things that happen in the future. Now, I wanted to take a note of this, more like a side note, because uh, we're only going to be in chapter 4 today. And chapter 4 is more of like a, a current reality than the future, or even it's more of a past reality. Because if you go to chapter 5, you're going to see that there's this lamb who is slain and he ascends the throne. And, and that is a, a description of Jesus whenever he, he died and, and, and rose from the dead and now like stands in glory. And, and so what John is seeing here is actually something that would have occurred in the past if we were trying to make a timeline. Uh, all that to say, it, not everything that you see in Revelation is the future. Here's something that is more like an eternal thing or even a past thing. Uh, so, John is seeing this heavenly spiritual throne. Look at verse 2. John says he was in the spirit. This suggests that he was pulled into like a prophetic vision. You know, the world around him started to, to grow dim and he could see spiritual things in the way that we, with our eyes, see physical things. Like he's seeing spiritual things. So there's not really these things that look like this. It's just spiritual descriptors. And this is going to be an important tool for us this morning and for you as you read books like Revelation, apocalyptic literature, uh, as, as you read those in the future. So, so hold on to that as, as we go through this imagery, because John is describing spiritual things that he sees in the spirit. He's going to use a lot of metaphors uh, for these spiritual things. He's going to use physical things to describe these spiritual things. Things look like this or like that, like an eagle, like an emerald, like, 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 as it were. It's all illustrations for spiritual things. You got that? It's not that these things aren't real. It's just you cannot see them. So he's given us some, some helpful tools. God's real. You just you, you can't see him with your eyes. So, so hold on to that interpretive tool as we go through all this. Um, so now before we get into the details of the throne, let's just state the obvious. Like, who sits on thrones? Kings sit on thrones. God is sitting on a throne because God is king. Did you notice how he's not even called God here? Look at, look at the end of verse 2. How's he described? He's described as the one sitting on the throne. Not that he's not God. It's just it's describing God in relation to his role. Uh, John is, is focusing us in on his kingly role in this moment. The Bible often refers to God as being a king or like a king because he's the one who does what kings do. He protects, he governs, he makes the laws, he punishes the evildoers, he rewards the good doers. And so it's no surprise that we see God in Scripture adopt this 
physical imagery of a king to describe himself and how he deals with his people, his chosen people. And not only his chosen people, but like all of the universe. God's been on the throne, the metaphorical throne, longer than thrones have existed. He's the king who decided the laws of physics. He's the king who tells electrons how to move. He's the king who decided where to put the oceans and where their their boundaries would be every day of the year. He's the king who, who nurtures the ground by sending his rain clouds. He's the king who put Pluto in its orbit. He's the king who told the the three stars of Alpha Centauri to to be over there and to burn for this number of years. God's the king of everything. God has always been the king on the throne. And long after our human kingdoms rise up and fall into the dust, he will still be king. God will still be the king on the throne. Now let's take a look at his throne. This throne, it looks as if it is adorned with jewels. Uh, It's decorated. Look at verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Uh, Jasper and carnelian, these are precious stones. Um, they, now, now, look, I, I don't want to read too much into this imagery. Uh, we can get lost in speculation whenever we, we read Revelation. Uh, but Jasper is described later in Revelation. The, the heavenly Jerusalem looks like Jasper, it says, because it's clear and bright as crystal. And it's in the setting that's describing God's holiness and glory. So th- this Jasper probably refers to God on his throne is holy. He's pure. He's good. Carnelian. Carnelian, uh, I don't expect any of you to know Carnelian. I had to Google all these things. Um, Carnelian is red or reddish in hue. You know, red is more of like a judgment color. Think fire, think blood. And then the throne itself is described in jewel language as well. Look again at at verse 3. And round the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, like the shining, twinkling, rainbow, jewel-esque thing. Uh, Now, the rainbow is very important in the story of Scripture. It pops up a few times, and, and from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we see the rainbow. And the rainbow is an image of God's mercy. So whenever, the, whenever God created the earth and then the earth was spoiled because of sin, he, he made a new creation. He, he flooded the earth. He judged the earth. And then he, he made this new earth, so to speak. And he, he hung up this rainbow in the, in the sky as a promise that he would never flood the earth again, that he would never judge the earth in that particular way. It was a sign of mercy because that bow had been leashed or unleashed. The arrows from it had, sh- had been shot at the earth, and, and he's hanging it up now in heaven. And he's saying, like, this bow is, is here, and it, it's not going anywhere. It's going to get used again. You know, you're going to need this bow to get shot again for your salvation. But right now it's hanging in the sky as a sign of, of mercy. So taken all together, these jewel-like descriptions of the throne suggests that God is not a God to be trifled with. He is holy. He brings his judgments on the earth. 
Yet also his throne is surrounded by this rainbow of his mercy, holiness and mercy. You know, you, you cannot peg the God of the Bible as either being like this angry, prudish entity who sneers at all the sinners out there. He's not, he's not that. Nor can you peg him as being like this, this chill, anything-goes, heavenly bro. You can't peg him as that. He, no, he's the God who is holy and demands holiness, but also shows mercy. And every bit of that is beautiful, like a jewel. Okay, so the next thing that we see about this throne is that it extends from heaven to earth. Uh, He rules over men, elders, 24 of them. Look at verse 4. They're sitting on 24 thrones set in a circle around his throne. It's like God's rule and reign is, is radiating out from his throne onto these other thrones on the earth. Uh, it says his holiness is reflected in their white garments. His kingly reign and rule is reflected in these crowns that they're wearing on their heads. Now, later we're going to talk more about these elders and, and see their connection to like ancient Israel and the church and stuff. But, but the point here, like the surface level point, is that God's throne governs all other thrones. King of kings, Lord of lords. God's people need this. Like Resurrection Church needs this. Because we will live in fear of every Nebuchadnezzar or or Nero or new political regime that rolls into town unless we know who is really on the throne. And look, I get that we're in Ottawa. And there are a, like a lot of decisions that get made here that leave us thinking, you know, like, like where, where is God in this? Where is God's rule in this? Where is his law in this? And, and I'm sure that the, the Christians who received the, the, the letter of, of Revelation, they were wondering the same thing as they were being killed for not worshiping Caesar. So we, we, we may fear hard times coming ahead. Like, like that, that may be true. It, it seems at, at times that all we can do is cry out, you know, like, like, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please make this place like heaven. But the truth is, the truth that we see through that open door is that God is on the throne. God is in control, even now. There is no human throne that can challenge him. And their fates rest solely in in God's hands. So so let me tell you, God is in control of Canada. God's in control of the world, the universe. Who's on the throne? Your God. No matter what else you see in life, let us peer in. Let us see him on the throne. Because that's what's real. That's what's eternal. That's what will last forever. Okay, so now the last thing that we're going to see about this throne, and it's going to be sort of a whirlwind tour of this other imagery, we're going to see that this throne is a throne of grace, a throne of salvation. It is wrapped up in salvation for God's people. So after uh, God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he saved them again. He saved them again, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to their sin. 
He gave them the law, which showed his holiness, like the holy standard, which they, are, they were made to live by. And he also gave them the sacrificial system, which gave them mercy and salvation. He was, he was saving them there. Holiness and mercy. And how was God's presence on Mount Sinai described? You people who know the story, how was it described? Look at verse 5. Just like it appears here. Lightning and thunder and fire. Dreadful on the surface, like there is a God here on this mountain. But at the heart of that, grace and salvation for his people. Same thing with the seven torches of seven spirits we see here. You can go trace down the cross references later, but this imagery, it comes from a mix of prophecies, like the throne in Daniel 7 with fire spilling out. Uh, Ezekiel, like these these burning coals around it. And and Isaiah 6, like these coals coals that cleanse the lips of the prophet. And and Zechariah 4, where there's these these lamps and these spirits that that are promising that a new temple will be made where God's people can meet with God. It is a story of salvation. And all these prophecies, all these fire, all these torches and spirits. Same with verse 6. The sea of glass, the crystal sea. Now, look, this is one that I think is really hard to interpret. And lots of people have their opinions. So I invite you to form an opinion on this and send me an email telling me what you think it is. All the interpretations of this crystal sea, uh, the sea of glass, that they hover around salvation as well. Some people, they think that the sea refers to a wash basin, like how they had at the temple where you would, uh, worshipers would go, they would cleanse themselves and, and be like made ritually pure, you know, a symbol of them being cleansed from their sins so they can be in God's presence. Other people think that this refers to the raging seas that God calms. Uh, like, like you go read the Psalms and God uh, calms the seas which represent Israel's enemies and he brings peace. Um, Other people think that that this sea, this crystal sea, actually refers to the Red Sea crossing. And whenever I first heard that, I was like, what in the world? How do they get that? Actually, in Revelation 15, if you go and read, there's a group of people standing next to a sea that is crystal, is what it says. It's it's crystal, and they're standing either next to it or on top of it. Um, The Greek's hard. Uh, And they're singing the Song of Moses, which is what the Israelites sung after they passed through the Red Sea. So those are some options. There are, there are more options. I've got my own theories that I don't know, I don't know how to interpret this. Uh, but all these options really point to God saving his people. So email me what you think it is. Okay, Let, let's breathe. You, you, can, you can wiggle in your chair. That was a lot. That was a lot of imagery. We got in deep in like 50 million places in scripture. You don't need to remember it all. You don't need to understand all that. So if you're thinking there, like, oh, man, that was hard to follow, that's fine. What you do need, what you need more than anything else is to have this throne at the center of your universe, at the center of your worship. Look, human beings cannot help but worship something. You could be the most atheistic, secular person out there, and, and you are still worshiping night and day. What do I mean? Like, look, look, we're going to put something on the throne. We've got like our little thrones and our little personal universes. 
as if we could create our personal universe. Uh, we have these little thrones, and we will put something on it. We'll put money on it, admiration. We'll put pleasure on that throne. We'll put security on that throne. Something will be at the center of our universe. And, and this matters, you know, like, because we will do whatever that little throne asks of us. We will serve it, but it, it will always let us down. Look over your life. You, know, you, you try and serve security. You try and make your life as secure as possible. You, pr you probably feel pretty insecure. It's never enough. You put, you put whatever on that throne, and it'll, it'll come back to bite you. So worshiping pleasure leaves us in pain. Worshiping security leaves us in fear. Worshiping the admiration of others, it, it makes us feel like a fool. But there is one. There is one who sits on the throne that is above every throne. One who knows what is truly right, truly good. We want to know his holiness, like that, that God. There's a God sitting on the throne who will come and judge to make sure that all of creation fits into his holy standard. There's one who looks at you and shows you mercy, offers you a, a royal pardon, more beautiful than all the colors of the rainbow. So let us gather around him and worship. Okay, so that's the throne. I told you that, was, that section was going to be twice as long as all the others. That's the throne at the center of heaven's worship. Now let's look at the four living creatures. The four living creatures. Okay, I'm an avid memer. Uh, memer, memes, you know what memes are? Uh, I hope most of you know. You can come ask me later. Um, one of my regular husbandly duties for my wife is to supply her with good memes. That's all I really use Instagram for. And uh, I've really enjoyed the recent wave of biblically accurate angel memes. You know what I'm talking about? Um, look it up later. Uh, th the internet has really grabbed onto this idea that angels in scripture are not like fat little winged babies. The internet gets this, you know, like the church needs to catch up. We need to stop painting little babies on the wall. Um, the, the internet has understood that angels are mind-breakingly bizarre in how they appear. They're the sort of creatures that when you see them, you know, they have to cry out like, do not fear, because you, you will fear if you saw the things uh, that we see here, the biblically accurate angels. So if they're not fat little winged babies, then, then what are they? Look at verse 6. They are creatures covered in eyes in front and behind. Verse 7, lion-esque, ox-like, human-faced. One of them looks like an eagle mid-flight swooping down. Verse 8, six wings. And the wings, they're not just wings, the wings are filled, filled with eyes. A flying mass of eyeballs. And they are constantly chanting in worship. Okay, so what do we make of this? Well, let us gather all the data we can from Scripture, and then we will, we will draw some conclusions and figure out, like, why this is important, why this is here, why we need to know this. Uh, so these, these, uh, these, uh, these creatures are cherubs. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 20. You can go look it up if you want. Ezekiel sees these same living creatures, and then he says, I knew that those were cherubs. Those are cherubs. And so this week, uh, I, I refreshed my knowledge of cherubs. I got deep into cherub lore in the scriptures. And here's what I found. 
Cherubs are God's special throne attendants. Like they are his praetorian guard. They are the angels who, who surround him closely. Like they're always with him. Uh, cherubs protect the Garden of Eden. They're out there with a flaming sword, you know, protecting God's presence in the, in the tree of life. Cherubs, they are what are depicted on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, from like, I may have seen Indiana Jones, there's like these angels with their, their wings out uh, over the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And what they're doing is they're actually surrounding the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what is the mercy seat? God's throne. Cherubs, they are woven into the curtains of the temple and they're carved into the, or the, the, yeah, the all the curtains and they're, they're carved in the wall um, of the temple. Cherubs actually act as God's chariot. We see God flying around on them in, in, in uh, Ezekiel. And also uh, there's a psalm, one, one of David's songs, it's actually in 1 Samuel, and uh, it, it describes God is, is riding on, on a cherub. Hezekiah, in, in his prayer in, in Isaiah 37, he prays to the God who is enthroned on the cherubim. So in all of these instances, these specific type of angels are depicted as God's most trustworthy servants. His closest servants. So what's going on with their bizarre appearance? People debate this. Uh, some people think that, oh, these, they, they, uh, they look like these animals and creatures because it's like they represent all of the created order. Um, I was thinking about it, and I was reading other, other commentaries. I think a more persuasive interpretation of their appearance is just how we in interpreted everything before. These are, are physical things that help explain spiritual things. And so these physical attributes explain spiritual attributes. So like a lion, these cherubs are fierce and powerful. Like a human, they are intelligent. Like an ox, they are, they are servants who will get the job done. And, and like an eagle, they are swift to carry out God's commands. And the eyes, let's not forget about the eyes. They are covered in eyes. They are filled with eyes. These eyes search everything. They, they know everything. Nothing can be hidden from their sight. It, it's as if they are God's eyes in the world. They can see everything and they, they even know themselves. The eyes are on the inside too. They're like the perfect servants. And they're chanting. Look at verse 8. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Now, some of you know where this song comes from. Not the hymn, but like the song itself, which comes from Scripture. Some of you know it comes from uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, where these angels are, with uh, six wings are chanting, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and what they're singing is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And, and this, this part's important, so pay attention. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what they're singing glory. These four creatures in Revelation change the lyrics. They change the lyrics of Isaiah 6 because they're waiting for the glory to come. Notice what they, they say in verse 8. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, I want to explain this was and is and is to come. Because uh, they're not singing about God regarding like present tense, past tense, future tense. They're singing about God. Uh, they, they don't, well, it's, it's not who was and who is and who will be. It's who was and who is and who is to come. And this, this phrase is actually used a number of times in Revelation. And sometimes it's all three, who was, who is, and who is to come. But then there are instances that happen later in the book in which it's just who was and who is. And in those instances, it's because it's vision of God's glory coming and it's present on the earth and it's pouring out like judgments and it's like holiness across the universe. And so let's put all this together. These servants around God's throne, they are singing for this to come. They are singing with anticipation of their, their, their king, their God, to come in his glory and his holiness to be manifested across the universe. That's what they do. That's what these four living creatures do. Now, how does this affect us? Like, how's Frankie going to pull a rabbit out of a hat on this one? Like, what do we do that these these four living creatures do? Well, we can take a, there's a couple things here we can take for some consideration. First is this, we aren't alone. It's not just humans out there. God has other servants, better servants. And since he doesn't need us, he doesn't need them either. Like, he's God. But he has delighted to create servants, creatures. He, he made these, these beings, and he has endowed them with a purpose. Their purpose is to serve him, glorify him, enjoy him forever. And look, you need this. I need this. Because us humans, we take so much unneeded pressure on ourselves whenever we get this wrong. And tell me if you got this wrong. Like, God has given us a purpose to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And it is a crushing thing for us to replace that purpose with any other purpose. Like, like earlier, I was saying, you make stability or security your purpose in life, and you will always feel the opposite of that. You will never feel stable enough. That will crush you. You were not made for that. That is not your task. You are a servant to serve the Lord, to glorify him and enjoy him. Yeah, you know, like the Lord wants you to have delight and pleasure in things, but that is not your chief purpose. What is your highest purpose? It's about him. So whenever you're fretting in your life about, you know, like, oh, man, you know, am I going to give my family everything that they could ever want in this life? Am I going to make my spouse as happy as I can? Am I going to get enough? Am I going to be loved enough? Don't let those things crush you. Your purpose is to serve this one seated on the throne. Put that in a spot. Everything else will fall into place. The second thing to note about this is this. These creatures are longing for, for his glory to come to earth. Just as they surround God's, uh, God's throne and that they crave the fullness of his glory to come, so too ought we center our lives around God and truly 
want him to come here. Is the coming of the Lord bad news to you? Think about that. Dwell on that. He is delightful. He is good. Let us, let us really desire him above all other things. The throne, the four living creatures, and lastly, the 24 elders. Look at verse 10. Whenever the living creatures worship, uh, the elders do whatever the living creatures do. They start worshiping, the elders fall down and start worshiping too. They are worshipful. So who are these elders? Uh, earlier, I said that their thrones represented uh, God's people, God's chosen people. Um, I also said that they represented the, king, uh, the, the kings of the earth, the, the lords of, of, of the earth. So, so, so who, who are these people? Well, I, I think the best explanation of who these 24 are is uh, found in the book of Revelation itself. Um, it's it's God's, God's people. They're the clearest representation of his kingdom. And in Revelation 21, the, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down. And uh, if you don't know Revelation 21, even if like you're a, a brand new to this Christian thing, I urge you just go read it. It's like one of my favorite. Anyway, that's a side note. Um, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and on its gates and on the foundation of its walls are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. 12 plus 12, 24, makes sense to me that God is talking about his chosen people as the clearest expression of his kingdom radiating out from heaven onto this earth. A kingdom of worship. And I think what the elders here are doing in worship is really interesting. Look at verse 10. What do they do? They cast down their crowns. Now remember, this is a spiritual reality reflected with physical imagery. It's not like these, these, uh, these elders on the thrones are like constantly in a state of like casting down their crown and they like magically appears on their head and they're just like in an endless loop like this. It's not that. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual thing. It's just using a physical image. So don't get lost in that imagery. Uh, it is a spiritual representation of them saying that, you know what, I'm not the real king. God is the king. Yes, you know, they, they have crowns. God made humans with crowns on their head. Whenever God made people, he, what, what did he make them for? To have dominion over his creation. They were to act as his vice regents on, on, of the universe. They walked around and they were supposed to rule as he would rule, in his stead, so to speak. Now, we know we messed up because we, we like the feel of that crown. Now, we wanted to be the ones who were kings of our own little universes. But, but, but these, these elders don't. They aren't like that. Like they're made perfect. They're casting down their crowns. They seek giving him the glory, all the glory to the one true king. Look at verse 11. They're singing. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive gl uh, glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And just like Psalm 115, you're like, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. Like these elders, they understand that they came from dust. And all their skills, all their rule, it is just an image of the one true king. A reflection of his glory. Like their greatest joy as 
people who sit on the throne and wear a crown, their greatest joy is adoring the one who made them. Now you, you don't wear a physical crown on your head. Well, maybe some of, maybe some of you little ones do, or some of you older ones, I just haven't seen you wear a crown. Uh, all of you though, you have a crown because you are an image bearer of the king. All of you walk around with symbolic crowns on your heads. You are God's servants, his vice regents on planet earth. That is what it means to be human. Like you, 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 you're, not a, you're not an animal. You're not made just to survive. You are made to, to make this place flourish like a garden. Whenever we look at all the mess that humans have done on this planet, like, and there's a lot, it stems from this. We have not ruled as he would have ruled. We have not sought his glory. We have looked at this planet and said, I'm going to take this. I'm going to make this mine. I'm going to consume. But is that what our God is like? He is a God of giving. He calls himself a servant in scripture. That is what humans were made to be. And look, your kingdom may be small. You may be like king of a, a few children. The ruler of your bedroom your room. You may be queen of the backyard garden, but look, all the authority that you have been given in life, whatever it is, use it for God's glory. Cast down your crown before him. Rule as he would rule. Seek the benefit of others. Look, if we're honest, we really mess this up. I look at all the places I've had authority and, and I've, I've misused it. We have rebelled against this God. We have ravaged this earth. We have harmed his creation. We deserve his judgment. So this is just a snippet. Go read Revelation 5 if you want the full thing. But it is a, it is a marvelous thing that this God on this crown, this eternal one who is king of all, stepped down from his throne and became a human so that he could stand in the place, our place, as rebel kings and have a crown not of gold not of glory not shining like a diamond but a crown of thorns pressed into his head as he took our place in judgment as that rainbow of God's wrath was released into him so that humanity could be restored and renewed and be made holy like that's the king who now rules in glory that's the king we should have at the center of our lives. That's the throne that I want to bow before. So let us cast our crowns before King Jesus. This throne, these four living creatures, these 24 elders, they point us to the way that things are in heaven and the way that things are supposed to be on earth. And John saw this vision like with spiritual eyes and wrote it down so we could treasure this vision in our hearts, a vision of God's throne room. A vision of worship. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are holy, 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 glorious in judgment and glorious in mercy. Help us to live with heaven's eyes. Help us to worship. And come quickly, we pray. Amen.